Welcome to the So What Question, a podcast for historians to share what they do and why it matters. I'm Evan Falkenberry. On this episode, you're going to hear from Nicole Bauer talk about her love of French history. So Nicole is an expert on the history of secrecy and transparency in French history around the Napoleonic era, uh, 18th century, early 19th century. And she's going to talk a little bit about how she came to that topic, why it matters, the connections between secrecy in the French state back then versus now, when it's such a hot-button issue in our own times. And then she also talks a little bit about history in general and how history is for the weirdos, as she puts it. And it has a lot to provide for people who might not feel like they fit in all the time, but history can provide an outlet for that. So I begin by asking Nicole a little bit about how she came to the topic. Well, um, I do early modern France and um, I'm a cultural historian. So I'm really interested in cultural shifts that take place in 18th century France, um, the long century, but also leading up to the French Revolution and kind of the developments of the qualities of what we consider modernity today, even though I think modernity is still a very thorny and problematic and difficult term to pin down. Yeah, what is modernity? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it really seems to me the more I study and read about it and um, debate with other scholars and talk to people in my department and you name it, uh, random people on the street, It's just, um, it really is a very relative term that uh, has to do with people, the way people will like to posture themselves as uh, as opposed to some other group. And in many ways, being modern is kind of like nationalism in a sense, because you need some kind of other person against which to define yourself as not modern or backwards or that sort of thing. And so, I mean, I don't want to go into a whole crazy tangent about modernity, but it it seems to me that modernity is a very relative term that depends on uh, context and who you're referring to. And it really changes from century to century, which country enjoys a kind of uh, hegemony, cultural, political, military. uh, And often that country gets to pose itself, posit itself as modern. And in the 18th century, for various reasons, France uh, wanted to uh, push itself forward as modern, and it wanted the rest of the world to believe that they were the most modern nation. And um, many people did believe this. You know, they're reading French literature, um, learning about French political thought, and and yet it's at the time when the French state completely implodes at the end of the century. And... um, But nowadays, we often think of the French Revolution as the birth of modernity in the West. Um, And I think there's a lot to um, support that. But I like to, in my research, complicate those narratives. Of course, you know, every historian will say that. But um, in my research, particularly, I'm interested in the emergence of the idea of government transparency and how this became a value and something that people sought in a government, and which is not the case before the 18th century. It's not at all something uh, people are worried about, that they're concerned about. And I'm interested in how 
the French, particularly in the 18th century, start to care about transparency as a cultural value and as a political value, and how secrecy over time tends turns to be cast as sinister, and it's also feminized. So there's a gender aspect that I'm very interested in. Uh, secrecy is cast as um, a sign of weakness, a, a femininity, and something that people resort to uh, when they're trying to plot or use conspiracies behind the scene, whereas transparency becomes associated with um, a new sort of a form of masculinity and strength. And it's also uh, something that people believe a government should um, a government should be transparent to the people, and that citizens should also be transparent to one another. So there's a gendered aspect, but there's also a very political idea that um, you know there's surveillance going on more and more of the government of the citizens. So the citizens say, well, we should be able to see what's going on in the government. But along with that, there's the idea that. Um, if you have something to hide, maybe there is something uh, unsavory going on in your private life or something. So there's it, there's that implication as well. And so we tend to think of government transparency and accountability as a very good thing, as something that emerged with um, other qualities of modernity in the 18th century. But, um, and I think that's definitely a good thing. I'm not anti-government transparency or anti-accountability, but there's also another side to it that um, it, it, it's gendered and it's also, uh, we started to think of secrecy as something that is um, inherently sinister and if someone's hiding something, it's because they did something bad or um, what should we think about, you know, secrets in general, there's, there's a suspicion surrounding them. So, um, and this was not always how things were in pre-modern, early modern Europe. So I'm interested in looking at the qualities of modernity, what we associate with modernity, and um, complicating it, looking at the other side of it. Maybe not everything is a uh, linear narrative of progress, right? So that's kind of my uh, project in a nutshell, uh, cast under the framework of modernity, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. to get at those big ideas, who are like, who are some of the people that you write about or what are some of the stories that that you've been able to kind of uncover and, and put into your work? Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you know, th it's what I like about this project is uh, the the variety and the diversity of the kinds of voices that I get to look at, because um, I'm obviously interested in uh, governments and political culture and so I do look at uh, people at the very top of society, like the, the king, his ministers, and how they would use um, espionage. And they believed espionage was a very useful tool in um, going on, seeing what's going on in the rest of Europe. Uh, so I look at some letters written by Louis XV and his ministers and kind of uh, the heads of his spy networks. But I also look at... Um, women in power, like uh, royal mistresses, these sort of people like Madame de Pompadour, who exercised a lot of power at the time that she was, um, you know, at Versailles, but she was attacked again and again um, because she was a woman exercising power and because people believed she was going behind the scenes and 
pulling strings secretly instead of exercising power, quote unquote, legitimately. But the ones who are able to exercise power legitimately and in the public sphere are men. And so people resist women exercising power the way they do, which is covertly or behind the scenes or informally or in social spaces. Um, and they say that's illegitimate because it's secretive. But that's actually the way the women would get to pull the strings. And by cutting that off, it also cuts off um, elite women's access to power. So I look at elite women, but I also look at uh, a lot of ordinary people, many people, you know, you'd say from the laboring classes or um, from the fringes of society, people who are, um, they find themselves arrested for, um, there was this practice in 18th century France where you could petition the government to secretly put away someone in your family whose behavior you believed was uh, dishonoring your family. And so you could petition the government to say, put away your uh, wife or your son who's behaving very badly so that you could cover up their behavior and that would salvage your family's honor. And so um, a lot of people from all walks of life, from the highest echelons of society down to the uh, lowest classes, they would petition the government to put away their family members secretly um, because they believed that secrecy uh, protected, helped protect honor. Secrecy was a tool of honor. So I'm very interested in the concept of honor as well. You know, I, I'm a cultural historian and I love these thorny, weird topics like, like honor. And so um, many people from, you know, the lower classes, they they write letters and they protest this treatment. They find them. They they find that, you know, their liberty has been taken away for um, unjust reasons. And yet in the early part of the 18th century, this was a common practice to put away family members who might dishonor the family. And so um, by the end of the 18th century, it's it's rejected. People find this very uh, unsavory, odious. They think it's a sign of despotism, even though it was the regime that was uh, it was it was people soliciting the regime to help put away uh, a let's say a black sheep in the family. So um, this study of secrecy and how attitudes towards it changed over the 18th century also involves many sort of ordinary people, people who aren't well known in history. And I was very excited to find in the archives these uh, voices of these very ordinary people who talk about how they feel about their own families, putting them away, um, their rights as individuals vis-a-vis -a, -vis a collective like the family or a uh, guild or something like this. And so you see um, people believing that secrecy protects honor, but at the same time, this idea emerging that the rights of the individual should be protected vis-a-vis -vis the family, that you know, fathers of families don't have complete rights and power over their children or their wives or this sort of thing. So um, it's complicated, right? Because we see things that we um, would view as positive, like the growth of individual rights and um, government accountability. But there's also things that I think are... Um, <clears throat> more deleterious to certain groups like women when transparency becomes a value that we uh, are really going after. Some people lose out in this and it's really women who had an access to power informally. So uh, yeah, there's two sides to it, right? You know, it's it, there's some good and there's some bad.
but yeah, basically to answer your question, a lot of people I look at, which is really great. Yeah, that is. So, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. So I guess we can use that to kind of segue into, you know, why I, I can understand why you're interested in it, how fascinating of a topic it is, but like, why should like the outside world care or like what's the value <laughs> you know i'm not trying to like i'm not pointing a finger at you and saying explain yourself but you know what's the i, I want to hear from you like what's the value um you know why study this kind of history right right uh you know i i totally think that question is valid um and i have always just loved French history. I think it's so crazy and it's just the best ever. And uh, that's how I got into it. Um, but I do think that uh, given the debates we have even today in um, politics or just in the public sphere and media, um, we still have not resolved as even as modern democratic societies um, the feelings, the conflicted ideas we have towards uh, secrecy and transparency in the government and for the individual citizen, because even now we constantly have debates about um, government transparency, if governments are uh, transparent enough to the citizen. Uh, we tout it as um, a, a goal that should be um, sought no matter what. And I, I still think, I, of course, I think that's a, that's a good value to have. It's a positive value. Um, and, uh, there's constant debates about, uh, is, is this government or is this corporation corporations too, are they transparent or rather are they, um, exercising their power, you know, overreaching their bounds, their legitimate or legal bounds, surveilling citizens, ordinary people, prying into their private lives, and yet remaining uh, opaque themselves. And these are the debates that um, they're having in France in the 18th century. They are constantly accusing the government of being too opaque and yet prying into their private lives, surveilling them. And the 18th century is the period when um, France especially starts to become bureaucratized, modernized, more centralized, and when states um, become more sophisticated like this, they start to turn and watch uh, their citizens in ways that don't happen really before the 18th century, 19th century. Uh, they start to pay attention to how many children you have, and uh, they start uh, you know, speculating about population growth in the future. They start to watch you when the state isn't really doing this in the, say, medieval period. And uh, they did not fully resolve the conflict of uh, we want the state to be complete, completely transparent because if they have secrets, they're hiding something from us. And yet um, the citizen still wants to protect his or her privacy. And yet when they tout transparency as such a really important goal, uh, that carries with it the idea that the citizen should be to some level transparent as well. And, you know, nowadays we... Uh, you know, the government can find out so much about you if you want it to. Uh, you you are listed, you have your driver's license, everything is, you know, you're on the grid, right? Um, and most of us see the convenience. We see the convenience of this. And I, I do too. I'm not anti uh, the government knowing things about you. But, you know, when we uh, put transparency at such a premium, um, what does that mean about the level of privacy citizens have a right to vis-a-vis -vis security? 
these are debates that I think um, are not fully resolved that we constantly have every, you know, every year we're talking about um, how much should people be allowed to hide on their phones, on their computers, uh, when they might be criminals or they might be dangerous and we want the government to know what's going on in their lives, but we don't want to violate privacy. But if we did, this might save lives. You know, you know, these debates, they're, they're, they're always um, going on and on and on and in circles. And I think that if we knew a little bit more of the history of how these ideas came about and how these debates are actually older than we think, that might give us some insight into dealing with those issues that we still have not resolved today. We still don't know exactly the limits of secrecy and privacy or the government. We want a government to be transparent to the citizen, and yet governments have to keep some secrets in order to protect certain things. Um, but what secrets is the government allowed to keep? How many? How do we... Um, how do we keep an eye on that? How do we remain, remain vigilant so that the government can keep, keep the secrets it needs to keep for security reasons, but does not violate uh, the rights of the citizen? Yeah. So those are debates we're still going on with right now and that I don't think we have answers yet to, you know? Yeah. So that, that's, that's what I would say. So yeah. more in general, I mean, I'm a historian, you're a historian. We don't have to convince one another, but like, why, what's the, why, why is, what's the purpose of studying history so closely? Okay, um, well, I mean, there are so many good answers to that. I uh, would not even know where to begin. Um, you know, if I could tell you like a quick little anecdote. Um, Please. I, people always talk to me on airplanes. I don't know why. Um, airplanes are places where I like to get some reading done or uh, grade. I do a lot of grading on airplanes. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, when I grade, everyone talks to me. People will come up to me all the time. You know, I'm just sitting in my little seat grading a pile of essays on a the little tray table. Mm -hmm. And people will say, what are you doing? Are you are you a teacher? Are you grading? What are those? Are those essays? What are you doing? What, what do you teach? Where do you teach? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I, I don't know why. People always want to talk about that. But um, I, I'm grading one of these days in the, in, uh, on a flight, and this guy next to me uh, asks these questions, and I tell him, oh, yeah, I study history. And he goes, huh, well, I'd rather make history than write it. Oh. <laughs> and I I said, oh, okay. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a florist. <laughs> and so then he gives me his uh, business card and proceeds to uh, try to get me to hire him for my next uh, social event, maybe mm -hmm. my graduation, um, and goes on and on about this and how I'll, I'll probably never make any money. And uh, basically what I do is pointless. <laughs> That's kind of um, what he was saying. Uh -huh. And I I said, uh, well, you know, actually, I think that um, the historians in my department are some of the most active people. You know, they're, some of them are political activists. Some of them are quite vocal. They write op-eds. And uh, I don't think that writing history or being interested in history precludes doing something in the world or making changes for the better or, you know, making history, quote unquote, um, and I really wanted to convince him that the people in our department, and our department is great, um, can be quite vocal and quite active. 
And it's, it's, it's directly related to our work as historians, because as you know, when you study history, you see how uh, ordinary people have enacted change against often incredible odds because they started to cooperate and work together or the force of ideology in different ways um, influences people to start revolutions. You know, I study revolution. And um, these are events in history, and you see it again and again in history, where um, people are able to enact change that was completely unthinkable maybe 50, 100 years before the event. For sure, you can say that for the French Revolution. You can say that for many, many, many other events, um, both for negative and positive change, what we might call negative or positive change in the world, um, that you know, ordinary people really thought was impossible. So I wanted to tell him this. I wanted to say, um, you know, studying history shows you that activism or getting involved and uh, having making your voice heard or even coming to realize that your voice has strength and purpose and that you are that you have agency to use a word we love in academia um, is studying history can get you to see that. Um, this is possible today too. And um, some of the most politically active people I know are historians. I mean, historians can just get all out there all the time. Our department at UNC was very um, famously, I, one of the few in uh, the 40s that allowed uh, Japanese American students to enroll at UNC as undergrads when they were suffering a lot of discrimination in the during World War II. So our department has a history of uh, getting involved, not just studying history, but making history, I believe. And um, I'm trying to explain this to this guy sitting next to me on the plane, but he just wanted me to uh, buy his flowers and he was not buying it. <laughs> so, but, but it's okay because my fervor and frustration with that conversation has stayed with me and I'm gonna tell whoever will listen to me uh, why I think studying history is so important. And uh, it's actually, you know, I could, you know, we have all the, what do you call it? The the tried and true, the truisms like, oh, well, you know, study history so you don't repeat it and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's all true. But I also think that studying history um, shows you how ordinary people can enact change and it can inspire you to do it again when you feel like, when you sometimes feel you're powerless or sometimes feel like your voice is not that strong, um, you know, we see in history that people got together and decided to make change. And I really find that inspiring. Um, there's many ways, of course, to interpret history, but uh, that is something that I feel very strongly about. And uh, I'll tell anyone who wants to hear about it. You know? yeah. <laughs> so. What made you, I know you, you really like French history, but yes. I guess growing up, um, maybe in college, what what made you personally want to like spend your career studying history? Um, yeah, so I have a very funny eccentric answer to this because I am an eccentric person. I would say, um, you know, I really feel like, um, well, like you said, a lot of people, most people have some kind of interest in history, at least some kind of period. And, um, you know, people just... I, I like to read a lot of historical novels when I was in a kid and all into college. And uh, I just loved history classes. 
Um, but the other thing I would say, at least for me, I think studying history is such a wonderful thing because it helps um, people who do not always fit into all of our social norms and cultural norms that we have today. You know, I'd say um, people who are really attracted to the discipline and academia in general, we can be we, we can be some we can be eccentrics uh, to time from time to time. You know, academia is known for having a few eccentrics, and that's not just a stereotype. I mean, and I myself, I would say I'm for sure one one of those weirdos. And um, you know, studying history, I think, of, along with you know, inspiring activism, which I firmly believe in, um, it also helps confirm your weird being a weirdo. It helps you. It helps you see that uh, being a weirdo is okay. And I will give you some examples. Um, so, for example, uh, there's this great book on uh, the history of the night in early modern Europe by Craig Kozlovsky. It's called Evening's Empire, and it came out a few years ago. And he basically explains how our sleeping patterns and our attitudes towards night, you know, and our cultural attitudes towards night changed over time. And especially um, they changed when in Europe they started to put more street lights and uh, have more sophisticated lighting and Europeans began to drink more caffeine and stay up later at night. And they began to think of night as a time to socialize. Um, and at the same time, uh, they started to, because they're doing this, our sleeping patterns changed. And uh, it used to be, if you go back to the Middle Ages, people would go to bed very early as soon as it gets dark. And they would, um, they actually had two sleeping periods. They called it first sleep and second sleep. And if you read pre-modern literature or stories or um, any kind of texts, they will usually refer to first sleep or second sleep because human beings used to go to bed early, um, stay awake for a few hours in the middle of the night and do various things, leisure things, and then uh, sleep again and wake up. And uh, when in the West we started to stay up later and do things like socializing or going to parties or um, just reading, working later at night, uh, our sleeping patterns changed. And then when you have the advent of capitalism, it really changes things because that's when you get the eight hour workday becoming a norm. Mm -hmm. And because of that, people are expected to, I'm sorry, eight hours. No, they weren't, they weren't working just eight hours in the industrial revolution. There was like 16 hour days like the, the children are doing, um, but the eight hour sleep cycle. And because um, you would work such long days in these shifts and it had to be um, coordinated with factory work, uh, it it was much more efficient and it just uh, worked better to have workers sleeping a solid eight hours, waking up early in the morning and then doing these long shifts and going back to sleep. And um, so even today, when you have all these commercials for sleep uh, deprivation, sleep problems or trouble sleeping or insomnia, and you see these commercials where people will say, oh, I used to wake up in the middle of the night and I couldn't get back to sleep, but now I have, you know, fill in the blank sleep medication and all my problems are solved and I have a good eight hours sleep. Well, you know, um, when people sleep like this, our, our culture tells us uh, something is wrong with you because you're supposed to sleep eight hours, wake up in the morning, work a whole long day and do this whole thing. Well, that's not how 
we naturally or we used to do things. That's that's capitalism and the industrial revolution on. Um, and we actually are, you know, predisposed to wake up in the middle of the night, be awake for a few hours and sleep again. That's what we used to do. Um, but nowadays, if your behavior does not conform to um, what's more efficient or what is what are the norms in a capitalist society, uh, we medicate it, right? And I think that when you study history and you kind of have this long view, you can see that, you know, maybe there's nothing really wrong with me. Maybe it's because of the changes, all the rapid changes that we have from the 19th century on that, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time you know, conforming to, I mean, some, some can do it better than others. You know, plenty of people do the eight hour night and are fine and wake up in the morning, but look at all the people who have sleep problems, you know, related to stress or whatnot. Um, and instead of telling them, well, maybe, you know, there are alternative ways to get rest or to think about your sleep cycle. Instead, it's now everybody has to have the eight hour sleep and get up early and do the capitalist workday and blah, blah, blah. And um, when I read that book, I thought, huh, you know, maybe it's okay if you are not just like uh, what this culture or the society is telling you to do um, in terms of sleep. And of course, that applies to many, many things our culture uh, tells us to do. Um, but that example of sleep is, I think, just a, it, it would really, I think it'd be really helpful if not just historians knew about that, you know, that people who have trouble sleeping know that maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Maybe it's, there's, there's other factors, you know, but we tell people something's wrong with them um, if they don't conform, you know, history um, really can help, help you see that if you're a weirdo, maybe that's not uh, completely your fault, you know. Um, I would just say that, you know, here in the weirdo community, as I am a member of, we prefer the terms eccentric or uh, delightfully whimsical. Um, but for sure, you know, I brought up the sleep example because uh, I, I'm also an, ex I'd say, not, uh, not conforming to social norms in terms of how I sleep. I'm a total night owl. I do a lot of work late at night. And it's been very hard for me to uh, sometimes conform to um, what is expected of, of you with the sleep cycle and also just the rest of the world. Uh, it's hard if you're a night owl and you want to go to the bank and do all these things that normal people do. Um, but just the other thing I wanted to mention uh, really quick is um, about uh, friendship, too. And another thing that I think is very helpful for people in reading um, in studying history is this idea of um, gender and friendship, which is also very interesting to me. And I just wanted to say really quick, um, a lot of especially for women today, um, I was reading a book called Self-Esteem and Women by um, Linda Sanford and Mary Ellen Donovan. And this is a great book from 1985. So that's the year I was born. Me too. And, <laughs> yeah, great. And, um, and yet the issues in that book are super relevant to today. And they took a historical view with a lot of their arguments for women having self-esteem. And they said women should value their friendships and um, see that women having friendships with each other was actually often the norm and those relationships were sometimes even more important than romantic relationships in 18th and 19th century America and they looked at colonial America and they looked at 19th century America and they were trying to argue that women should value their friendships and should see friendship between women as uh, quite natural as opposed to 
the dominant narrative of we have is uh, women uh, always being rivals with each other, being catty, being unable to have true friendships with each other, and um, believing that the only meaningful relationships they can have are romantic relationships, and um, that friendships fall by the wayside with romantic relationships, or that um, they're not really deep and meaningful. And so that, I think, is another example of how studying history helps us see that um, actually uh, what maybe our culture is telling us today and um, may be problematic, may be something that we have a hard time conforming to, not because we're total weirdos and don't really fit in, but because um, you know there are changes that happen in the 20th century uh, that, that tell women certain things or that make women believe, uh, oh, you're catty and oh, you can't get along with women, when in fact women have had meaningful friendships for a long time. And I liked that example along with the sleep example of how studying history helps free us from um, the difficulty we have sometimes conforming with what our culture expects of us today or the, the things our culture will tell us about gender and yet Many women will say, well, you know, um, but I've had meaningful relationships with other women and uh, I don't feel like it's always catty and uh, one-upmanship with, with other women. So I think studying history in, in that sense, too, helps women see how um, their own their own feel, feelings or friendships can uh, ha actually have precedent and that um, we don't have to think that women are always uh, vying with each other and, and can never be friends. And just like we don't have to think that um, if you don't conform to the eight-hour sleep cycle, there's something wrong with you, right? Mm -hmm. History helps us see that there were different ways people used to do things. And maybe they were better uh, in other ways as well. Um, we don't have to feel so bad about having difficulty conforming to every norm that we have today, socially, culturally. So I liked that example, too. And I just wanted to tell you about that um, because I was just, I felt... I felt very galvanized to to tell people, yeah, see, studying history helps us see that um, things were not always this way, and maybe um, you don't have to conform if if it doesn't uh, if it, if it's still affecting your health or you really feel like emotionally this doesn't fit you. Um, and we see that um, today, I think, with uh, debates about gender and uh, equality and that sort of thing, um, who fits in, who's allowed to. Um, be considered normal. Those questions also really interest me. So I just wanted to throw that out there too. Thanks for listening to the So What Question. Visit our website at sowhatquestion.wordpress.com. Follow and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please rate and leave comments for us as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.